Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Thursday, March 10th. Coming up, how a type of untraceable gun used in last week's shooting at Olathe East High School is becoming more popular in the U.S. But first, some headlines. The Kansas Senate confirmed Janet Stanick to head the Kansas Department of Health and Environment yesterday. Jim McLean of the Kansas News Service reports Stanick's future was in doubt heading into the vote. During confirmation hearings, several Republican senators wanted to know if Stanick supported restrictions like those imposed by Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's administration during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Stanick's initial responses to questions like whether she would close churches did little to ease those concerns, said Republican Richard Hildebrand, the chair of the Senate Health Committee. But he said as they continued to talk, he got the answers he needed. She could have given me several different lines to appease me, but she was honest with me. I appreciate that honesty. With Hildebrand leading the way, Stanick easily won confirmation. Even so, many Republicans are still backing a bill that would limit her authority to contain future infectious disease outbreaks. The Missouri House of Representatives has passed a bill that would increase funding for charter schools by taking away money from public schools. Sarah Kellogg reports. The legislation modifies the current funding formula for charter schools in the state with money distributed based on student enrollment. According to a fiscal analysis of the bill, St. Louis public schools are estimated to lose over $18 million to charter schools, while Kansas City public schools would lose over $8 million. House members voted 85 to 67 to pass it. It now goes to the Senate. An ordinance proposed by Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas would establish a $33 million fund for more community engagement and crisis intervention at the Kansas City Police Department. KCUR's Salisa Kalakal has more. The money would come from the city's general fund and be used to hire more officers dedicated to community policing. The ordinance received pushback from residents and social justice advocates who say they don't want more city money going to the police department. John Simpson of Moore Squared, a local social justice advocacy group, testified against the ordinance. The past operations of the Kansas City Police Department have not reduced violent crime in our city. Putting more officers on the street doing the same old thing has not worked. The Finance, Governance and Public Safety Committee voted to hold the ordinance for two weeks. This week, Johnson County District Attorney Steve Howe revealed that last week's Olathe East High School shooting involved a ghost gun, a homemade, untraceable weapon that lacks serial numbers. It's often assembled with parts bought online. And it's the second such crime involving this type of weapon in the county in two weeks. Ghost guns are becoming more popular across the country and in the Kansas City area. On Up To Date, KCUR's Steve Kraske spoke to two experts on the subject, Glenn Thrush, New York Times correspondent who's reported on the issue, and John Hamm, public information officer for the Kansas City Field Division of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Here's an excerpt of their conversation. Glenn, based on your reporting, how surprised are you that, you know, a ghost gun was used in a high school in the Kansas City area the other day? Uh, not at all. About a month ago, a high school I don't know, four miles from my house was involved in a, in, in a not dissimilar shooting. And, and for your listeners, what we're talking about here are guns that are made up of components, sort of either Franken guns that are picked up from parts 
or are assembled from kits purchased legally online and then assembled later, sold or used. They're called ghost guns because at the moment, and there is a pending federal regulation that will change all of this, but at the moment, you can sell them without any of the, the kind of serialization that true firearms require. Therefore, they're untraceable, therefore the term ghost guns. What's, what's really happening now is the bottom end of the market Kids, principally, who can't obtain guns from other means, criminals, people who have red flag issues involving mental illness, are increasingly turning to this market, not so much on the East Coast, a little bit more uh, in the middle, middle of the country, but very much so on the West Coast. So this is a phenomenon mm. that seems to be creeping from the West to the East. John, again, you're with the ATF. How often are you seeing uh, ghost guns here in the Kansas City area? Well, in the Kansas City area, we actually have seen very, very few instances of, uh, of ghost guns recovered by law enforcement uh, and used in crime. Um, but uh, it, it absolutely is a phenomenon that started on the West Coast. Uh, where we see nationwide, the biggest pro proliferation is in areas with fairly tight state and local gun uh, regulations, which we don't have here in the Midwest. And so our crime guns tend to still come from traditional sources, by far the, the biggest being stolen guns, guns stolen from, from homes, businesses, or the, mm. the biggest problem over the past two or three years, particularly in Kansas City, has been guns stolen from cars. But still, John, we're, we've seen two such crimes uh, involving ghost guns in the last couple of weeks in Johnson County, that can't be coincidence. Well, absolutely not. And, uh, and, and a very good point. Um, one of the problems with, with ghost guns or what we refer to as privately made uh, firearms uh, is that as the term ghost uh, sort of implies, it's very, very hard to get data on these. And, and one of the things that ATF does every day is track sources of, of guns that are used in crime because it's our responsibility to disrupt those channels. And it's difficult at best with ghost guns because we are um, cut off from our typical ability to to trace those firearms mm -hmm. um, and to have any idea really how many are out there. Well, Glenn, maybe not so common here in the Midwest, but uh, to underscore your point, uh, you write that the proliferation of these weapons has reached epidemic proportions in some parts of the country. And you mean what by that? In California, somewhere between 25 to 50 percent of the weapons being obtained at crime scenes or in connection, uh, connection with crimes uh, are now privately made firearms. Mm -hmm. um, it really actually kind of worked its way from, from Northern California and the Oakland and San Francisco area down to San Diego. And I wrote a big story a couple of months ago right. talking about how this epidemic um, was particularly, again, kind of skewing towards younger kids. As the gentleman from the ATF pointed out quite rightly, the reason why California is proliferating so much is because essentially, like, I believe the city of San Francisco no longer has a licensed gun dealer. It is an environment because of local law and state law that is inhospitable to the, to the legal sales of guns. So people are looking for an alternative uh, pathway. And increasingly, it's finding its way into the hands of kids. I, I am currently working on a story uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia, of a 13-year-old boy who essentially, 
built a ghost gun factory in his living room and wound up accidentally shooting his 14-year-old sister to death. Wow, wow. John Hamm, any sense of how big a market there is for these kits that Glenn referred to that can be used to build these things? Well, the, the market is certainly substantial. Privately made firearms are not are not a new phenomenon. That is something that's allowed in the federal gun laws uh, and something that people have done for many, many years as, as, uh, as a hobby or as uh, shooting sports folks w- really enjoy building their own firearms. And federal law allows that. Uh, federal law also says that those guns that are made for you, by you, uh, for personal use, don't have to have the markings that guns that are introduced into commerce have. Hmm. And so now we're seeing that provision of the federal law, which which was would put into the law to support in support of hobbyists and shooting sports. Now we're seeing that exploited. Um, and so, yeah, the, the kits are, are readily available, both online and, and in brick and mortar stores. And, and John, you can't be happy about this notion that, that these guns can't be traced. Well, right. That's a that's a really big public safety issue across the United States. And we're certainly now seeing it here in the Midwest. ATF traces guns that are recovered at crime scenes for law enforcement across the country. Uh, and we do that by contact, by using the markings that are required to be on a gun that's manufactured for sale. We take those markings then and contact the manufacturer of that gun and then work forward to the first purchaser of that firearm so that we can then provide that information back to the law enforcement agency that recovered the gun. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're at a homicide scene, you recover a gun and uh, ATF can quickly tell you, hey, that gun came was was purchased three days ago by John Doe. Right. Um, that may not solve your case, but all of a sudden you've got information that you didn't have before and you've got a lead where maybe you didn't have a lead before. And ghost guns take that off the table for us. Uh, the down and dirty cheap metaphor here is we're entering the wild, wild west, if you will, in terms of the availability of these things, including the capacity now to print out guns using these 3D printers. This is a whole new era to, to Glenn's point. Oh, it absolutely is. And when you consider that the uh, federal regulation that, that governs most of firearms commerce in the United States was written in the mid to late 60s, and you think about how the world has changed you know, since that time. Yeah, I mean, these are these are new challenges for for ATF and for the Department of Justice. But yeah, 3D printers are, you know, and, and we have thankfully not in the Midwest yet. That doesn't mean that they're not out there. But there are people that are printing guns on 3D printers. Hmm. And um, there is a, a federal law that requires that any gun whether it's made for personal use or made for sale, has to have enough metal inside the gun to trigger a magnetometer or a metal detector. Again, that's a, that's another real concern. We've certainly seen you know a whole other issue that we won't get into today. There are incidents across the country where ghost guns or personally made guns or 3D printed guns, uh, when when they're loaded and and the shooter pulls the trigger, the gun malfunctions terribly. Uh, and so that there's there's a whole new array of problems, um, and uh, it it is certainly a challenge uh, from a public sec- safety p- perspective. You know, Glenn, you write that the decades long debate over gun control in Washington winds up revolving around the regulation of traditional firearms. Ghost guns, you say, pose a more elemental question, which is what makes a gun a gun? What did you mean by that? 
Well, I think uh, with a ghost gun, the regulation of a firearm, and, and we're dealing with two main statutes, one from the 30s and one from the 60s, um, one from the early 70s, rather. And, and, uh, and it's been, it's been uh, amended a lot. But essentially, the definition of a firearm is something that has the capacity to, to fire a projectile. And the interpretation by ATF and the Department of Justice over the years has, has been in really a case-by-case -case basis. Manufacturers would send schematics of their kits their uh, privately made firearm kits or, or fully fully made weapons to get, get a determination as to whether or not those firearms were considered fire, where those mm -hmm. components were considered firearms. Um, I think this new regulation is much more, uh, and by the way, I should say it is very likely to be challenged in court and potentially held up by challenges in court, but it provides a much more granular definition of what a firearm is, is composed of. And it, it is intended to include lowers which are the the which are the how essentially the housing uh for the firing chamber and 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 the mechanical elements of a gun that make a gun a gun so mm. we are not dealing with a situation that's like our grandfathers or our fathers or our uncles we're dealing with a situation in which this country is being flooded with legal firearms to an extent that it has it has never seen before we are by far and away the most violent country per capita a, a developed country per capita in terms of, of, of shooting deaths. Um, last year, I believe, and, I, and I, I may be flubbing this, 20 million firearms were sold legally in this country. Um, and we are seeing, in addition to the use of guns in crime, we are seeing significant increases over the last decade in its use in suicides. That's mm -hmm. become a real focus of the firearms industry, right. to prevent suicides. Uh, and, and we're also seeing this phenomenon of people buying multiple guns. And I just spent some time down speaking with the ATF folks in Georgia about this, where they have a gun in their house or several rooms of their house. And some people are leaving their guns inside their cars. So a big source of illegal crime guns in a place like Atlanta are coming from these mass break-ins. Gangs will just break into 40 cars on a block and get five or six guns that way. Right. So so we're dealing with a, so we're dealing with an issue of a tremendous surplus of supply that is totally changing the dynamic. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske speaking to Glenn Thrush of the New York Times and John Hamm of the ATF. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Scott Cannon. For more local news stories from Kansas City's NPR station, visit kcur.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.